Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. We are back in Boston with two amazing people. We always have amazing people on this podcast, but we've got two really amazing folks here today. Uh, one is Chef Michael Serpa from the Select Oyster Bar. Not only a great chef and restaurateur, but a rider in Chef Cycle. Rode once last year, is going to ride twice this year. It's great to have you here, Michael. Thank you. A pleasure and honor to be here. And Karen and Sarah, a longtime friend and champion, not only of Share Our Strength, but of so many important social justice causes here in Boston and all around the world. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Really glad you're here. Um, Michael, I want to start with you. Yep. You know, we always have a chef or a restaurateur on this podcast, and it seems like they break down into two categories. There's a category which I would say is predominant of chefs who didn't start out to be chefs, started out to be doctors or architects or engineers, uh, failed at something once or twice, and then remembered that they loved cooking with their grandma or their grandfather, and they decided to be a chef. And then there are a select few like you, whose grandfather was a chef, whose father was a chef, whose brothers and siblings and everybody else. It, it's I think you've said restaurants are our family trade. Cooking is our family trade. Um, you grew up um, headed into this industry. Yeah. Um, you know, I was swayed to not be in this industry. You know, my mother's like, be a doctor, be a lawyer, be something. Don't be a chef like everybody else in the family. But, you know, kind of the craft and the the family tradition, it's such a almost cliche thing in any trade. It's like, oh, if you're a carpenter, your son ends up being a carpenter. If you're a plumber, you're, you end up being a plumber. Like, um, so I was just always drawn to it and from a small, you know, from a young age kind of worked in restaurants and saw restaurants and grandfather and my uncle and the other uncle, and my dad, and my brother is also in restaurants. Um, and this is where, where, where did you, where was your family? <clears throat> so my family was in Pennsylvania and then in South Florida. Um, so just even from when I was young, living down in South Florida, my dad had worked in restaurants and they had a catering company and. You know, there's always, it was always around. There was always food around and restaurants around. Um, and then once I actually started working in a restaurant, I was 12, um, my dad's place in Florida. And I was like, oh, I was hooked on it. And then it's hard to kind of get away from that. You, once you get that, that energy and the feel and the kind of love of restaurants and food, it's hard to do something else that's not quite as fun, even if you can make more money. So there wasn't a time where you remember, because you were so young, you remember seriously thinking about doing something else? You were Oh, yeah. I was going to do... I was enrolled in Penn State. I was a very good student in school. Um, and I was enrolled to go to Penn State for political science. Um, and I was probably going to do something with politics and law, which thankfully now I'm not doing that because that seems, seems like a hassle now. Um, but... Right before I was supposed to head off to college, the day before, I had all my classes picked, my rooms, all that stuff. I withdrew, and I continued working in restaurants, which I had ever been doing during high school. And uh, So the genes kicked in. Yeah, last minute. I was like, you know what? That sounds boring for the next 50 years. Let me just keep cooking fish. Um, and it seemed to work out. It was It was fun. And when did you open up the Select Oyster Bar here in Back Bay of Boston? So we opened Select about three years ago, just under three years ago. Um, it was 29. And, you know, I'd been working in restaurants since high school. Um, and I had the opportunity to do that, me and my wife. And, uh, yeah, it's been pretty fun. It's been fun to kind of do your own thing and 
have your own creative input and make the decisions and, you know, meet a lot of great people and have a lot of opportunity, um, you know, with the restaurant and with the people that come in and people that I get to meet through the restaurant. So it's been fun. So we should have brought our recording equipment over to the Select Oyster Bar and had this conversation there. We, we possibly there. could have right. done could that. Have done I mean, the studio, the studio is very nice here. Um, but not but, as nice. You know, but the wine selection and the food is probably better over there. Yeah, and who knows how the conversation go with enough wine. Um, Karen and Sarah, uh, I asked you before, what's the best affiliation for you? Because I feel like there's so many. New England international donors is the preferred answer, but you're involved in uh, a lot of issues as a as a philanthropist and an activist. And I think we go back, I think I met you through my wife, Rosemary, because you're both Wellesley grads and your husband, Jim, who's been on this podcast, Jim and Sarah, uh, had worked with Rosemary and we met you all that way. But um, your philanthropy go, kind of goes back uh, quite a ways. Tell us what the origins were for you. Oh, goodness. Uh, I would say a similar college story in a way, except the reverse. I went to school to study archaeology and I ended up studying political science. But I, I had these internships and summer jobs working at the Chicago Board of Trade. And they were selling commodities, food commodities, and I could see how the prices for the commodities were set according to events that were happening globally because they were on the ticker tape. And that got me interested in international development. And so I started studying that. And um, I didn't really do anything with it until about 15 years into my marriage when we started adopting kids and went to Latin America and started to see the, you know, the conditions that children were being raised in how many down there. kids did you adopt when you said we started uh, <laughs> have you have you finished adopting kids yes oh god yes okay. <laughs> long time ago uh four four, four. Okay. yeah i thought you were gonna say 15 i was like oh, oh no four, four, is a lot. four is probably a lot <laughs> and as they will all tell you i just have to get this off my chest i am a terrible cook so i hold, <laughs> no, I I hold michael in reverence I've, I've actually had your hamburgers during the football game they were they were, they were pretty good um new england international donors tell us what that is well, it's a network of people who are committed and exploring how to fund effectively international projects all over the world. So they're individual donors, they're grant makers, they're advisors to those folks, and they're people who do investing with a social purpose. And what are, give us an example of some of the, the projects that they would invest in. Um, they might invest in hospitals in Africa or... Um, social actually building hospitals building hospitals or operating hospitals they might invest in agroecology projects in Latin America uh, programs to end sex trafficking in Cambodia I mean it's everything you can imagine so it pulls the donors resources and has a bigger impact that way is that part of the idea usually people are funding their own okay. according to their own interests but we we accelerate it and we help make their funding more impactful by helping them learn how to make good decisions. Okay. Um, of all the things you do, I think of you most with regard to Haiti mm -hmm. because uh, after the earthquake uh, there, 2010, uh, you and your husband both got involved in big ways, but different ways from each other. Um, why was that such a um, significant pivotal event for the Aunt Sarah family and talk a little bit about what you did with the Boston Foundation. Well, we had traveled to Latin America and seen some pretty horrific poverty and Jim had also been to India. 
But in 2009, he was invited to go to Haiti, and that was shocking to him what he saw. And so he was invited to help build a hospital there with an organization called Partners in Health right before the earthquake. Then the earthquake happened, and that project became a much bigger project. But at the same time when that happened, I thought, well, what can I do to help? I sure can't build a hospital, (laughs) Um, but I can work with other donors. And we had a relationship with the Boston Foundation, and we decided to start a fund that would inspire people from all over Boston to address the suffering that was happening in Haiti, but also with the Haitian-American community here in Boston. So how does that actually work? Do you just start calling other people <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, really, how do I mean, because I think people try to understand, okay, yeah. if I want to make an impact, if I want to make a difference, if I want to do it, right. Karen and Sarah has done, oh. uh, how do I do it? Like, what did you, where, where did you start? Well, we issued a challenge grant. And so you, you, I, your own family, our own family funding. issued a challenge grant because people want to give with each other. So I think that was inspiring for folks. We also drew on the Haitian American leadership here in Boston. You know, because we, this is a large Haitian American yes, community. Yes, we have Boston. the third largest community in the country. And we knew we didn't know very much about Haiti. I knew almost nothing, but they did. And they had a stake in what was going to happen in Haiti. And they should. We knew they needed to be in leadership to make sure that Haiti would be rebuilt in ways that were going to be fruitful and um, just for the Haitian people. So we developed teams and, and a lot of local leadership. Still involved seven years later? Absolutely. It's changed my life. I'll always be hmm. deeply involved in Haiti. Love the Haitian uh, people, culture. It's so inspiring to go there. I remember uh, after the earthquake. I went down with um, another Boston philanthropist, Jeff Swartz, used to be CEO of Timberland, and um, ran into your husband there, I think (laughs) almost partly by accident. Right. Um, And he, as we were leaving, he said the next day you happened to be hosting a convening of the Haitian community in a church here in Boston, which I came and did a Mm -hmm. kind of a quick debrief to. Straight off the uh, plane. Yeah, but I mean, it's amazing that you had somehow without knowing anything about Haiti before that pulled together what seemed like the entire Haitian community here. Well, I have to give a lot of credit to the Boston Foundation. When you have a good partner to do something, you can make incredible things happen. And and they pulled out all the stops. Um, and Michael, you've got some um, Latin blood in you, Cuban. Yes, uh, Cuban grandparents from both sides. Um, but just kind of as you're speaking to Haiti and Latin American countries, you know, if you go to one of those countries and you're not going to a vacation resort and you actually go and see people in Haiti or Colombia or in Mexico or, you know, all over the, you know, South and Central America or the Caribbean, it's really impactful just to see this is normal day-to-day life versus being, you know, growing up and living in Boston area or whatever. It's really a a big impact and it kind of opens your eyes to the world. What's it look like, Michael? <clears throat> it's impactful because it looks so different or like what did what do you see? More so it's know? just that we, you know, somebody who's fortunate enough to live in the United States and live in a major city and, you know, make decent money, but comparatively to how people live in in other countries that are developing, you're like, "Wow, why why is this why is this normal here?" Like, how is this possible that these people can live off of so little and still actually still be happy and still be, you know, 
have a good outlook on life and still make music and still dance and still do part. And you're like, wow, this is really, really kind of inspiring, um, which is why I think that probably draws a lot of people to say, hey, maybe, maybe we should do something to kind of help this culture or help these cultures, um, you know, develop more and kind of help them get to a little bit better place. Michael, I want to talk a little bit more about the path that you took. So you had kind of chef and restaurant community in your blood, but you also went to the Culinary Institute and then came out and worked it with some different restaurant groups. Say a little bit about the role that mentors played to you. And I'd particularly be interested because I know that our listeners are always interested in, were there any missteps along the way? Were there any lessons learned the hard way? Any shortcuts that uh, that could help the rest of us understand? Yeah, I think, I mean, just in terms of kind of coming from a family of, you know, restaurant people, that gave me a little bit of a head start. And then Culinary Institute was great. Obviously, that's kind of the premier college or university, I guess, for culinary arts. Um, I was smart enough to drop out after the first year um, and just started working in restaurants in New York. And in terms of mentorship, you know, as a young chef or young cook, you really look towards your your chefs and your sous chefs and other line cooks to kind of make yourself better and get better and, you know, understand the industry a little bit more. Um, but in terms Did of... you have a mentor outside your family? Um, not... Not not not, not, not like way. a not like a traditional like oh yeah I worked for that chef for eight years that was really my mentor you know I did work with some chefs in New York and um, but I never really had a direct mentor in that capacity but it also that also kind of lets you figure it out on your own and then really figure out your your style and your voice and what you want to do because you have nobody else to kind of balance that off of except for yourself. Um, so I also think that was a benefit to me because by the time before I was 30, I could open a restaurant because I felt confident in what I was doing in my style. Um, and not having to say, oh, well, you know, say you worked for this famous chef for a long time, your food's going to probably be in that style. Your, your management style is going to probably be in their style as well in terms of your mentor. So it's kind of nice to kind of just figure it out on my own. Um, and in terms of our, uh, moniker add passion and stir, of, of your cooking, uh, what, as somebody who cooks a lot, what do you still get the most passionate about cooking or preparing? Because oh, Karen and I are looking for tips when we come into the restaurant with Jim and Rosemary. <laughs> well, it's, we'd skip the fish for, uh, for Rosemary. So we'll skip all that stuff. Uh, I, but for you personally, what's the most exciting you know, part I've, of cooking? I've been cooking seafood for, for a long time. Um, and it's still something that I'm like, wow, I really, you know, in the summertime, if you're, if you get some local striper or you get fish like that, it, it's still like, oh man, I can't wait to eat this. I can't wait to cook this. I can't wait to shuck oysters on Good Harbor Beach and do a big spread. And like, you know, you have a great time. But we were talking about it briefly earlier um, in terms of Cuban food, which is I very rarely cook Cuban food, but sometimes I'll do it for family meal at the restaurant. Sometimes I'll do it at home. Sometimes we'll do a party at my house, whatever. And it's something that's kind of based on my culture and my heritage, and I don't do it often. I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm gonna make I'm gonna make Cuban black beans and rice and plantains and ropa vieja today, and and for me, it's like, wow, this is my grandfather, my dad showed me how to make ropa vieja when I was 15, and then now I'm making it, and I'm like, yeah, I know exactly how to make this, and this is how it's supposed to taste, and this is what my grandmother's 
rice and chicken tastes like. So that's always to me is, even though it's not something I do professionally, it's something that I'm passionate about. And it's kind of fun for me to cook that and, you know, serve that to other people. I think all four of my grandparents were Russian, Lithuanian, Polish, and so you, I've never had any desire the, to cook got, any of the, those. The, the borscht, you can make foods. the borscht, and there's cabbage yeah. and all that stuff. Some good food up there. Uh, Karen, in terms of your path, I mean, you're kind of a, you and Jim are really like self-made philanthropists, so you, in some ways you've probably had to make it up as you go, but any uh, uh, mentors, any influences in terms of how you've thought about how to be the most impactful in philanthropy and any missteps that you've had that you would you know we should know about well one of the reasons that we started new england international donors is it's really hard to get training in philanthropy and it's hard to find mentors so we created this network so that we would learn from each other so i feel inspired all the time by other philanthropists and donors who are doing very creative things but also by the social entrepreneurs and their teams who you know, are out there every day, you know, putting everything on the line to solve what we think of as, as just humongous problems. And what are your top priorities in philanthropy? Well, this uh, relates to our experience really adopting our kids, having mm-hmm. seen children growing up in poverty and uh, not of, getting enough food. Some of your children from Ecuador? Yes. Yeah. We have three daughters from Ecuador. Okay. Gorgeous daughters, I must say, uh, and lovely people, and a wonderful son that was born in Boston. Okay. Um, so, you know, we saw the effects of the poverty on these kids. And so when we set up our family foundation originally, it's now a donor advice fund, it was to address that kind of poverty that breaks up families, that leads parents to feel so desperate they have to give up their kids. Hmm. So how do you address poverty? It's it's more than handing out food, right? It's getting to the roots of it. It's, you know, do people have livelihoods? Do people have safe communities? Do they have health care? You know, all of those dimensions of it that families need to stay together and to thrive. So we try to address those. So for, uh, for your kids, um, and only if you're comfortable, like what kind of circumstances did they come from? What did you learn from it? Um, were... were you know, I guess in Ecuador, I can imagine it could have been, you know, pretty hard times for some of those families. I would say when we did this about 25, 20 years ago, there was a lot more poverty in Ecuador. There's been some advance since then. Um, our children came from orphanages. And um, the first orphanage we went to, they had no infant formula. They had um, no bathtubs. They washed in buckets. They had no diapers. They used rags and plastic bags. Just in Quito, in the in, capital in, of Ecuador? In, yes, in, in Quito. But they had a lot of love. This was an orphanage run by nuns. And, you know, great care and love. But they didn't have some of the most basic things that children need to thrive and um, have good brain development, for instance. You need infant formula or, you know, at least milk. They didn't even have milk. Hmm. And you ended up at that orphanage how like how did you decide to go there and adopt we, there? we used the adoption agency that we had used for our son michael originally we were going to adopt from russia and a number of those adoptions fell through and we ended up with this fabulous little baby boy that was born in dorchester um but it was the same 
same agency took us to Ecuador. Mm -hmm. And then two years after that took us to adopt identical twin girls. And um, can really uh, good and wise and generous parenting uh, overcome those initial impacts <clears throat> that you were talking about? I, I, I've met your kids. They seem to be amazing. So I think the answer is probably yes, but it probably hasn't been easy all the time either. It hasn't been easy. And I don't think you can correct all the early deficits. For instance, when children don't get proper nutrition, that affects their brain development and they can end up with learning disabilities. Uh, they can end up with stunting, a host of medical problems. So um, when you adopt children from those situations, you have to be prepared, I think, to, to deal with some of those later, later on. Uh, Michael, kind of similar question about priorities for you. I know that uh, chefs get asked to do so many things because you're such an anchor in the in the community. How do you decide? You got involved with Share Our Strength and our um, Chef Cycle Ride, and in other ways, how do you decide what issues uh, you know in a world of ultimately finite time and resources that you can participate in? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, for restaurants, restaurants don't have a lot of money that's just how it is it's, it's margins not, are slim and, yeah you're yeah. if you're working in a really challenging environment and your margins are slim and you know you have to be you want to do as much as you can and have the most impact you can but it's hard because there's a million outlets um so i think you know figuring out what outlets you want to help and you want to work with you know, if that means you're saying no to 50, but you're saying yes to these three, but actually really doing something for those three or trying to do something for those three, uh, I think it makes more of an impact than not really trying for 10. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Pam Mass Challenge, I try to help with that when I can. Which is a bike ride here in Massachusetts yep. that so, raises funds for mm -hmm. cancer research. Yep. So Dana-Farber, yep. Jimmy Fund, um, they've been around for 30-something, maybe 40 years at this point. They raise a lot of money. Yeah, it's the biggest... Two-day bike ride. Two-day or one-time one event, uh, over $40 million. Um, I think 45 maybe this year. Um, so one of the biggest events, awesome, you know, huge thing here in Massachusetts. And, you know, No Kid Hungry, Share Our Strength is another one of my... Okay, this makes sense. It, It's, you know, hearing what Karen says... Just an example of the last dinner we did here in Boston. The big dinner was, you know, very expensive, high-end dinner. And when you listen to the the video and you watch the video and you listen to Billy talk and you listen to Tony, Tony was awarded there. This is Tony, Tony Moss, Moss from Craigie on Main. And you just you just kind of hear the stories and you say, wow, that that makes sense. That that makes sense. I can understand this. I can see what's happening to these donations and where this money's going. And the organization is obviously really well run and you just say wow i should maybe do something more and maybe i maybe i will do these two bike rides because why not let me try to raise a little bit more money because i know that it's going to something that's actually tangible and you could see what's happening there's people that are need food they need you know kids that don't have food like you were saying maybe you're not going to be developing quickly maybe maybe you're not going to be studying maybe you're not going to be paying attention in school because you're hungry which is a pretty that's a pretty black and white thing if you're hungry you're going to be irritable you're not going to learn you're not going to care so that's why i think you know i i like no kid hungry as a charity and a donation 
um, organization because it's actually tangible and you're like, well, that, that makes sense. That's black and white. I think the other thing that we've um, sought to convey, and I think uh, in the most part successfully, is that childhood hunger in this country, at least, is an eminently solvable problem. This doesn't have to exist. And there's so many issues that we all care about when we think about the international poverty that we were talking about earlier, when we think about Haiti, which has had what what seems like almost intractable poverty, although there are so many exciting entrepreneurial and inspiring things happening there. When you think about kids being hungry in the United States, I think we know intuitively, and some of us who have worked on it know more empirically, that uh, it's a solvable problem, that we can actually get that one done, check it off, go on to fight you know maybe what some of the root causes of hunger are in the first place yeah it just doesn't it doesn't make sense in the united states that kids and you know are going hungry it's the wealthiest country in the world it, it you understand okay there's problems in haiti there's problems in africa there's problems in asia there's problems all over the world but in the united states it just doesn't really make sense and you know the the weird kind of set set up is like okay that that big chef's dinner awesome dinner great great donors are there beautiful event very expensive event for per person to go there you say wow this is crazy essentially it's all these rich people at this fancy dinner with these chefs doing these fancy plate ups and great wine and all these donations how is like how does that make any sense but it does because it opens everybody's eyes to all these issues and you say wow I'm a chef working, cooking this dinner, and I'm saying, this is stupid. Why Why are kids at school in Massachusetts not getting food? Why are they hungry? Why are they going to school hungry? Why can't we just say, hey, let's, let's get them something good to eat? It doesn't really make sense. So that's why I think, to me, No Kid Hungry is such a great organization and makes me want to kind of help however I can. And I think, you know, as you said, it's a really solvable thing and a really kind of clear thing that... I don't know. It just needs needs to be addressed. And remind us how you first got involved. How did you first get connected to Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign? I don't even know. So I, I don't know. I, I probably did one one event somewhere, and I was like, hmm, that, that makes sense. And now you're riding 300 miles uh, in, in three days. And yeah. you know, one of the things I love about the Chef Cycle ride, and I'd love to know what you both think of this kind of theory, uh, is that you know most of us who uh, do this kind of work spend our time trying to figure out how to make it as easy as possible for people to give back, to write a check, to donate, to volunteer. Uh, here we decided to try to make it almost as hard as possible to contribute. But what we found is that there are certainly a group of people who really want to be challenged to do something not easy but hard. And they want to be personally challenged. And I think there's more there to build on, but it, uh, it it's not an easy ride, right, Michael? I think um, whoever picked the route this year was uh was pretty ambitious and i think they might have nailed it on the head with um hyper competitive chefs and restaurant people and i was like the first day you know some of the writers are great writers and the first day i'm like wow are these people racing like like this is blood sport this is a charity bike ride and i was like all right so it you know for chefs it's kind of it's fun because it's a challenge and, you know, to a normal person, you say, oh, I'm going to ride 300 miles in three days. Not that it's not really that much if you're big into biking, but it sounds like it's insane. So people say, wow, that's great. Let me help you out. Let me give you 50 bucks. Let me give you 100 bucks. Let me give you 500 bucks, whatever it is. Um, so it's it's actually 
yeah, count like counterintuitive. The more challenging it is, the more you're like, yeah, let me help that person yeah. do that because they're going to do something crazy. What do you think of that theory, Karen? But I think what's really motivating is when you can do it together. And I haven't seen the ride, but I would imagine the camaraderie and the shared pain <laughs> um, and the shared meals together are a big part of what motivates people to do it because you know you can have so much more of an impact when you've got a great team that you're working with. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about something that I just feel is so important and I would just love to get your advice on it, which is how do we create more of it? We've talked about the um, the power and the poignancy of the international poverty. Um, and part of our challenge as an organization is how do you create a constituency for addressing that? How do you get Americans to care as much about that as what's going on in our own backyards? Uh, any thoughts about how to do that. I think it's a really, it's a tall order, but, uh, but, but I mean, Karen, you're somebody who's managed to do it. When you think about the amount of support that you put together and the deep interest that resulted in what was going on in Haiti, not exactly halfway around the world, but still pretty foreign to a lot of Americans, you managed to convince people it was something they should care about. Now, yes. You're also, and you uh, have to either, either I think People need to either go to the sites and be personally moved and affected and have their lives changed by what they see, or those people from there come here. So here in Boston, we have thousands of Haitians, and their suffering was so palpable, you know, around the time of the earthquake, because we were hearing from them. Um, with our donor network, we bring people from overseas to come and speak to us, to teach us, to tell us about what they're doing in the field. I think you need that. You've you know, we've heard about proximity, meal. right? Mm -hmm. Brian Stevenson talks about you got to be near the problem. Well, so many of us, we can't go to Africa, let's say, but we can bring Africa to us. And um, that's what we try to do. Uh, in terms of proximity and Brian Stevenson, say a little bit who, who he is for not everybody who knows. Um, you have to help me with this, but Brian Stevenson lives in Montgomery, Montgomery, Alabama, and he has been working tirelessly on the um, the problem of mass incarceration of African Americans in the United States. And has written a great and powerful book called Just Mercy. Yes, uh, which is yes. which is really really powerful. Mm -hmm. Now you also, Karen, have I think an advantage when you're trying to persuade people because you have a divinity degree, and I've heard you <laughs> preach, and you're pretty powerful with words. Where does the is it is it divinity? Is that the right degree or yes, theology? Yes. Yeah. So where how did that come into play for you? Oh, um, well, as I mentioned, I studied international development. I also worked um, for local nonprofits after college, including for Planned Parenthood. Um, I was always dealing with ethical issues and wondering what the church's role was and should be in those issues and wondering why they often came out on very different um, ends of the spectrum. So I, I wanted to understand that. And when I went to seminary, I studied social ethics a lot, particularly Martin Luther King, Gandhi, Dorothy Day, you know, some of the, uh, the champions in this country and abroad who were sparking and leading social movements. So that must inform and influence your work, but tell us how. Like, how, how, I mean, how do you think about the way that time in seminary impacts what you do every day? Hmm. Um, I feel this is my vocation. This is what right, I was it's put a calling. On. You feel this, called yes, to do this the work. Is, this is what I'm put on earth to do. So that was time well spent. Yes. In seminary. <laughs> yes. Yes. And. Um, 
people are inspired in different ways, but I, I'm one of those people who collects quotes. I've got quotes all over my office. I use quotes, you know, from from great, great leaders. Just give us one of them. I would say we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. It's hard to beat Mother Teresa. Um, let's talk a little bit more uh, about food since uh, that's why so many people tune into this broadcast. Um, chef, other than your own restaurants, is there a, here in Boston a hidden gem, a secret place that you think God, it's overlooked, and uh, if you can get to Boston, you should try it. What's one of your favorite go-to places? There's some uh, there's some pretty good spots here in Boston. Um, I love Sarma in Somerville. That's one What's of my favorite. Sarma. Sarma. So mm-hmm. Cassie, yep. you know, she's a young chef, really great, really, you know, passionate about what she does, and she uses Middle Eastern flavors. She worked with and for uh, Anna from Oleana, and. Uh, you know, just a really kind of unique restaurant that really shows her personality and her style, um, which I think is kind of kind of fun and distinct. There's all these cultures and all this food. There's Colombian food in East Boston. You can go to get Salvadorian pupusas. You can go to Haiti and uh, Haitian restaurant and get like a goat stew. You know, a lot of local stuff that people would never go to. It's never on Eater. It's never in Boston Magazine. There's not, you know, there's a few writers that really kind of find these spots and you say wow this is crazy i can go eat real ethiopian food legit place ethiopian owners and clientele and you say wow this is just never in my in my wheelhouse and i think something like you said in terms of opening your eyes to to other places other countries i think something with restaurants you really you work with a lot of people from not from here so in new york i worked with people from africa from ghana uh, India, Mexico, uh, Mexico, Salvador, Peru, here, Colombia, Brazilians. So you have a little bit of a connection to somebody from another place. And you say, well, I, I know something about Brazil. I've never been to Brazil, but I know there's this is a town. This is going on. This is whatever. I know there's issues with, say, it's a national issue with Salvador, with El Salvador. It just happened last week. And I say, hey, to my Salvadorian guys, I'm like, hey, what's up with that? And like, oh. And you see they're affected by that. If you work with Haitians and there's a big disaster in Haiti, they're going to be affected by that because everybody has family there. If there's an earthquake or there's a, something going on in Colombia, whatever it is, you know, I think getting exposed and having a diverse city or a diverse place where you live really kind of opens your eyes to what's going on around the world. More so than just being, okay, I live in Boston. It's great. Everything's awesome here. But I think that's why restaurant people and chefs and restaurant owners and are so inspired to kind of help out where they can, even though that's not it's not a super lucrative field. But you say, well, these are the people that I work with. My kitchen staff, I have Colombian guys and Brazilian guys and whatever. If there's a problem in Brazil, if I have Venezuelan guys and there's a problem in Venezuela, you, you're going to definitely know about it. And it you feel that for them. How many industries can you say that about? I mean, that's so rare to think about the exposure that you describe to so many different cultures and so much different history. That's amazing. Yeah, I think, I mean, just because hospitality industry in general, not just restaurants, those hotels and, you know, service industry, people just want to work. They just want to have a job. They just want to do whatever they can to kind of help their families. And I think it, it doesn't matter to me if you're from Haiti or if you're from Ghana, if you're from... 
you know, if you're from New Jersey, it doesn't matter. As long as you want to work, great. Um, but it's it's kind of eye opening. You say, well, okay, I I know somebody from Ghana. If there's something going on in Ghana, I'm like, oh wow. Like, I was just gonna say, you don't even have to work in a field like the restaurant field to be open to these experiences. Every time I'm I'm in an Uber. You know, I, uh, yeah. I want to ask, yeah. okay, so yes. where did you come from originally? Today, my Uber driver was from Uganda. He came here eight years ago. Um, he went to UMass Boston. He wants to be an entrepreneur here in Boston. And then eventually he wants to take his entrepreneurial dream and help his home country. You know, every time I'm in the nursing home, the hospital with one of my family members, it's all immigrants there who are taking care yes. of people. And you ask them, okay, what is your story? Yeah. You know, where have you come from? And you start to realize, you know, how, how interconnected we all are. Well, and especially um, a poignant time to be having this part of the conversation because almost the main political divide and the polarizing divide in our country right now is do we let more people in or do we kick people out? Um, unique in American history for that issue to be at the spike that it's at now. There's been debates over immigration before, but um, I would love to have that immigration debate informed by this conversation and by people understanding the sense of how enriched we are by so many different cultures. Uh, I love your story about uh, going to Malden to the Ethiopian restaurant because I'm looking at my wife Rosemary through the glass window here of our control room and she knows that I can be impulsive about food. I can, you know, it. Uh, 10 o'clock in the morning say, I've got to go have one of Joanne Chang's double chocolate cookies and I'll, I'll be back in an hour. But I don't think I'm as impulsive as you are, Michael. I, I think it sounds like yeah, your life like, is, is governed by some I was going to go to Home Depot impulses. and I was like, you know what? I can do tile tomorrow. I'm going to go eat injera today. Um, yeah. Karen, go to restaurants for you. Uh, Rosemary and I have had the pleasure of dining with you and Jim a few times, but uh, what should we know about, about your favorite choices here? Uh, I have to say Tresca in the North End where okay. we took 13 friends and family members last night to send off one of our daughters on a gap year in Costa Rica. And uh, I'm a little biased because the head chef, his name is Richard and Sarah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a cousin of my husband's. Um, it's also owned by Ray Bork, who is a hockey player. But the food is fabulous. Fabulous Italian food. Good. Okay. Another hidden gem for... North End. All of us who love food. Um, Tresca in the North End mm -hmm. and Sarma in, um, Somerville. in Somerville. Excellent. Um, as we wrap up, tell us what's um, next for each of you. You each have your hands full. Will there be any other restaurants in the works for you? Um, Michael, um, I know you've got a ride to train for, so maybe that's uh, maybe that's enough. But what's the future hold? A little bit of biking. And uh, you could probably see the other restaurant we're going to open up the front window oh really still it's not, gonna be right here it's not announced yet but it's gonna be nearby the uh unnamed studio here on newberry street <laughs> uh and uh, same or different or uh, a little different but little different. we're we're just getting going on that and hopefully everything lines up with paperwork and all the permits so we can actually really formally announce that um but just in terms of you know as a business owner, small business owner, you know, you, you kind of get into a little bubble and you say, okay, this is what's important. I have 38 employees. You know, some of them are my family my wife works with me. So you're really focused on how can I make my business as good as I can for my employees and take care of my employees and make sure they're well paid and everybody, everybody's fed well at my restaurant, including the staff. But it's, 
it's always important, you know, to kind of look outside and say, oh man, that, that is inspiring. That is, you know, just talking to you today, Karen and Billy, um, you know, there is something that you say, oh, I should be maybe trying to do more. I should, I should see what I can do to help. Um, and recently I just saw David Letterman was back on with Netflix and he did an <laughs> interview with, uh, President Obama. And, you know, obviously both of them are very funny and charismatic, but just hearing them talk, you're like, wow, maybe I put, maybe I should try to do a little bit more. Maybe I should, you know, see what I can do. Maybe we can make a better fundraiser for the, the share our strength thing. And next week we have a big meeting and we're going to see what we can do to make, you know, raise the most money and using our outlet of something people like as a luxury thing, going to a fancy restaurant is a luxury. You're coming and you're eating $40 pieces of fish and drinking $100 bottles of wine and having a great time. And it's really fun, but that's a huge luxury. And, you know, saying, hey, how can I could take something that's a luxury that people really enjoy as a, you don't need to go to restaurants. You like to go to restaurants, but how can I take that to help out other people? And what can we do to say, hey, maybe we're going to help. How is Puerto Rico still have no power? That is insane. That is totally crazy to me. That's a, you know, U.S. territory, and there's schools that have no power. They just got it's the a power. travesty. Four, it's insane to me, mm-hmm. and there's no food and there's no water. And I'm like, this is part of the country. This is a U.S. territory. Like that doesn't make any sense. Um, and you know, there's a lot of things that's going on in the world, be it here locally in the U.S. or in other countries, or you know, across the world. And you say, wow, why can't we do something? A little bit more to kind of help that out so you know it's, it's inspiring to hear you guys talk today and it's always inspiring to hear, hear billy talk at any of the no kid hungry events and you say wow that you know that's black and white to me that that you know, solvable problem you know how can we make that go away well we're going to follow up michael on your very generous invitation to get involved more deeply you already do a lot and i know you're riding two rides this year in addition to being involved on the the uh, the dinner committees and so forth. So uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Karen, what's next for you? I have a feeling it's going to be in the same general direction <laughs> of how can I do more because that's what your whole life has been about. Oh, th- thank you. Actually, two things. First thing is I'm going to get to Michael's restaurant. Good. <laughs> um, the second Ho- thing... Hopefully with us. Yes, that would be great. The second thing is to create more small communities of donors. We started our first global giving circle last year. There are different models for giving circles, but ours has about 15 to 20 different people in it who each put the same amount of money in the pot thousand dollars some people can put more if they want then they learn about issues last year it was about how to help women and girls around the world they put out a request for proposals they evaluate those proposals they invite great leaders in to educate them about the issues along the way and then make choices and make grants um, based on the proposals that they think are the strongest we're going to run two global giving circles this year, and I hope they're going to proliferate around New England and hopefully around the country. Because, you know, as I was saying before, people feel they can make more of a difference when they're doing it together, yeah. and they yeah. actually can. And being part and it's of more something fun. larger than themselves. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's just, uh, it's so enjoyable. You learn a lot, and you make the best friends in the world. Um, so New England International Donors probably has a website. People yes. can learn more about it just mm-hmm. by going to New England yep. International Donors.org. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, 
Karen Ann Sarah, Renaissance woman and great leader in this community. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Billy. Um, and Michael Serpa, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Get closer to the problems that you care about. There's a famous photographer named Robert Kappa who once said, if your pictures are not good enough, you're not close enough. Well, in the social change space, getting close, bearing witness, going into the community, working with people directly, getting an understanding of what they need, that's often the precursor to really powerful transformational change. Don't just post, don't just preach. Get your hands dirty and get involved. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.